Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the indie revolution. And now, here's an indie blues double shot from our featured artist today, Nathan Kalish. And stay tuned for that interview. It comes up right after these songs.
from his brand new release and we got nathan on the line hey nathan how you doing today doing great how are you doing i'm doing pretty well now this is your first time on our show and we always like to get things started by giving our fans this opportunity to get to know who you are get to know your story so give us the story of nathan kalish well, I am a traveling songwriter that's been uh, touring for full time for over twenty years, uh, minus the last couple of years, obviously for obvious reasons. And uh, multi instrumentalist, uh, played drums and guitar and bass, write songs, um, uh, an engineer, and produce records. Um, yeah, that's, that's that pretty much sums it up, I'd say. Okay, well, you know. I- Every musician I ever talk to always has that crossroad moment where several um, possible career paths were laid in front of you and you chose music as the one that you decide to follow. What was that moment for you where music became clear that that was your career path? Well, I guess uh, I got a gig playing drums in the Dead String Brothers when I was like 26 and up until that point, I was kind of a, I was kind of a weekend guy. And then that was my first uh, real, you know, three, four month tour. I did that for about three years, and we traveled all over the world doing that band. And then I uh, never really looked back after that. All right. Well, let's talk a little thing, a little bit about the release that you have out now. Um, when you were putting to the, get this together, what was your goal for this release? Well, um, I didn't really have a, a serious goal in mind because 
uh, everything is, up until this point has always been goal-oriented. And, uh, you know, just like everybody, I was kind of um, shut out of the industry. I wasn't able to travel for two years. So I was just recording with my with my buddies around Nashville and um, just recording songs. Uh, we'd go in the studio, we'd record four or five songs a day. And then, um, you know, I'd wait a couple months and I'd do it again. And, and uh, so I didn't really have much of a goal. I didn't really know what I was trying to accomplish. And then towards the end, it was like, okay, I think I have a whole album here. Um, and a lot of the songs never made the cut. You know, some of them I released as singles. But it was it was more of like a of an anti-goal because um, everything up until this point's always been goal-oriented. You know, there's always like a time frame. And uh, this one, we just decided to put out kind of when things started opening up again. So we had no idea what that was going to be like or how long that was going to take when we started. Okay. Well, let's talk about you as a songwriter. Um, every songwriter has their way of, you know, tapping into the muse. Uh, you had mentioned that, you know, you, you work with a lot of the Nashville songwriters and, and you know, that is that is a real songwriting town. I mean, they look at songwriting as, as a profession. You know, they have songwriting times. You make appointments for... Um, you know, co-writing. It's a structured kind of environment. What is your process when you sit down to write that allows you to get the gears turning? Well, it's it's always really different. Uh, I'm I'm not really part of that that Nashville structured crew, but I know a lot of those people and a lot of great writers here and stuff. And I do write with some people here, but we all get together in East Nashville, you know, which is a different speed than uh than nashville you know, it's on the other side of the river and and most of the people that i write with they you know they come over after work you know and they we all have jobs and and you know we're, we're all real busy so we just kind of do it when we can and as far as my original you know my stuff that i don't co-write with uh a lot of that is when i'm driving around or or um working on something and i have an idea i'll i'll make a notation or i'll or i'll pull my phone out and i'll record a a couple, uh, you know, um, lyrics or melodies that I, that I have in my uh, head, or you know, when I was traveling, a lot of times it was while I was traveling or in hotel rooms or um, you know, backstage and stuff. So uh, it was, it's, it's always kind of just when it hits, it hits, and you gotta, you gotta get get it, you know, the idea down, and then you kind of come back to it later when you have more time, um, set aside time to kind of workshop the idea. And that's kind of the important thing. Like, I've got a whole, you know, I've got an entire program on my phone just full of ideas, you know, for the last six months. But I've been putting out this record, so I haven't had time to sit down and write. But, you know, hopefully by the time I do have time to sit down again, I'll, uh, you know, I'll be able to remember what these ideas were. Or my notes will be good enough or my, you know, recordings will be, you know, uh, audible enough. Okay. Now, um, you know, I, I always find that lyrics and melody are two functions of the brain. They're two different sides of the brain. Um, you know, lyrics are very structured. They have, you know, continuity, story, meter, rhyme. But melody is a little different. Some songwriters like to work off a of groove. Others like to work off of uh, a chord structure. And then others just take the, the lyric and, and its cadence will dictate where the melody should go. What is your go-to when you start looking for your melodies? 
Um, well, uh, I, I do like to, I do prefer to start with the lyrical idea. Um, but that being said, I prefer to start with a lyrical idea that also has a melody. So a lot of times it's something that I'm humming, you know, that's an idea, uh, you know, and, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll do it all, both at the same time. And then it'll just be kind of working around the musical idea uh, when I, when I sit down to finish the song. Um, but you know, I also like to just sit down and play guitar or piano and and work on melodies. You know that eventually they might turn into songs too if I find something that works with them. And I also, you know, I also write around beats a lot too because I'm a drummer. And I think that that's a super important part of uh, making you know rock and roll music uh, interesting is having interesting beats and stuff. And I think that's something that uh, gets ignored a lot by songwriters. Is the rhythm side, you know, a lot of guitar players don't 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 write to metronomes or don't write to beats, and I feel like it's too melody based, you know. And then you miss some of the the really great things about early rock and roll, you know, which was R and B and influence and stuff. And you know, the rhythm is is a huge part of that stuff. So I like to kind of sometimes when I get the when I get the um, the vocals and the melody kind of figured out, then I I like to switch around drum beats sometimes and try different feels out to see, you know, how they feel with different different grooves, you know, as well. Okay. Now, you know, um, a lot of songwriters have embraced technology as part of their toolkit. Um, you know, whether it's their cell phone to capture those momentary uh, inspirations or they have a home recording studio and they like the layout structure and then write to that. What are some of the tools that you have in your toolkit that you find indispensable when you sit down to write? Well, definitely my phone. Yeah, I mean, my phone is like, it's 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 got so many things on here that are unfinished ideas and stuff. And a lot of times I'll get rid of a phone or my phone will, you know, have to be replaced and there'll be a lot of ideas on there that I never even get to. So I do use my phone a lot, but I also... When I record at a studio here in Nashville, you know, I use I use studios here. There's a couple I I, I, I frequent, um, but I always take things home to my studio and mix them. I mix everything myself, and uh, I do all my overdubs myself, and um, you know, I do a lot of engineering there myself as well. So uh, having the extra time to kind of work through a lot of that stuff is uh, is the technology that's available for recording now is far superior than when I learned how to engineer, you know, 20 years ago. I, I started on Pro Tools when I was like 17 or 16. And, um, you know, the converters that they had back then, uh, they just weren't even, they didn't even sound good, you know, but that was the future. Nobody even really knew anything about the 80 digital conversion at that time. And I remember they were putting out CDs, you know, these reissue Beatles records on CDs and everybody's like these don't even sound good you know and now the converters that I have in my my home studio are better than the ones that they had you know at Capitol Records in 92 so mm -hmm. I mean it's and it's and it's affordable stuff you know I mean I you know the stuff I have is great and it's, it's expensive but I mean it's also very affordable compared to the way things used to be so I, I mean I think that a lot of it is you have more you have too many options now you know with technology where 
it's important to just have what you need and and you and stuff that you use you know you don't you don't need you don't need everything that's available <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. I, I've been a recording engineer actually since 1980. So, oh, you know uh, exactly what I'm talking about then. Oh yeah, I mean, I started with tape. Uh, you know, they my first job yeah. was on the splice block. Yep. I hated that sucker. Um, yeah, I've done, I've done it too. You know, I've been I've done analog back in the day too. I mean, when I started, that was. I mean, when I started recording, I mean, analog was really it still did sound better than digital, you know? And and there was a huge difference. And now it's 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 not as big of a difference anymore. I mean now, you know, a good a good tape machine that's maintained is gonna sound just as good as a digital, you know, mm-hmm. converter that they have now that you can have in your room for two thousand bucks. So I mean it's but yeah, I mean we, we started on tape too, you know, and then I then I switched to Pro Tools when I was like seventeen. That was when I really got yeah, but I remember those four, like those four track recorders, recording on those. I mean, that was some serious fun, you know. Oh yeah, when I, I was, you remember the old uh, Fostex eight uh, eight track on yep. quarter? Yeah, I, I I never had one of those. I always wanted one of those. I had the Tascam four one four, which is such a cool machine, you know. And you can still find them around, and and they're so much fun, you know. And you learn a lot, you know, about fundamentals and. But it, I always want to go back to those things and record on them now because I bet I'd be able to make some really great recordings now on those machines. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, now you said that you started out on Pro Tools, and I, I always like to ask, you know, especially musician, engineers, producers, you know, what software they're using now. Um, yeah. Are you still I with Pro Tools? That. Have you moved on to something well, I, better? You know, I, I still have a copy of Pro Tools on my computer, um, and I don't keep it updated. I don't. I only use it when I'm transferring files now, um, and you know, I, I never mix in it. I never really even track in it when I'm at home. I just use it because all the studios I work at use it, um, mm-hmm. so it's a lot easier just to pull up files. So that being said, I have like a monthly subscription that I turn on and off, you know, and maybe use it twice a year transferring files but i've been using um the daw i've been using luna oh okay is, from motu uh no um, it's from, from uh, universal from audio. audio that's right yeah it's their new uh daw and i've been with that daw since it started two years ago um they, it was kind of like they put it out during the pandemic because it wasn't quite ready yet and um i, I love it i think it's great um my the feature that i really love on it is is the uh they've got this kind of um um blanking on the words right now i apologize that's okay uh, but yeah they they i really i really love their um you know their their busing like their okay. out busing the grounding uh, and busing on it yeah they have like this api uh kind of mod that's that's like for busing your auxiliaries out and then your main out uh, it kind of emulates the back end of a of a board, an analog board. Um, I'm I'm blanking on on the terms right now. Which That's okay. To me a lot, so <laughs> a lot of times I'll be talking about microphones and I'll say all the wrong numbers and people just look at me and I'm like, oh, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I know what it sounds like. 
<laughs> right, right. Yeah, I actually use Studio One. That's uh, I moved. I mean, in my studio, I have Pro Tools, I have um, Cubase, uh, but Studio One seems to be the one that I gravitate to the most. Um, it's just a great workflow, and there's some great features in it. Um, you know, so you know that's 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 my my thing. You know? Yeah, I mean, all, I mean, they all sound a little different. They all operate a little different. Um, I really love Luna, um, and and I I don't think I'll ever change because um, you know it's just it's they're constantly making it better, and it's 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 still free. I think for anybody that uses them as a um, so it's the API summing is what I really like. Um, that's what I was talking about with their buses. It's called summing, you know. It's right, kind of, right. Back when you would do the analog mix downs, and you would you know sum your you would sum your bus your drum bus down, and you'd sum your vocal bus down, and, and that's kind of what's emulated with these with these Luna um, plugins now. Um, so they don't just have the nice plugins on the front end, you know, the preamps and stuff. Where they have the unison preamps, and and you can actually put it on the front end. It actually changes like your impedance on your Universal Audio um, uh, input and stuff. So I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty wild, you know. And and the board I was using here in town at the studio to do my basic tracking was was a Neve. So the Luna stuff mixed really well with that when I bring the files in, um, you know, because I'd have the Neve preamps that were digital. Mm-hmm. Through Luna, it sounded very comparable to them. Yeah, yeah actually, I, I Studio One has the same thing. They have uh, console cool. emulators that you can put on um, on your buses. Right. That you can you can pull up Neve API. Um, yeah. All like different kinds of, of of buses, even a four track recorder, you can put you can pull up. You know. That's cool. So yeah, it's it's you know the technology is just amazing. Now, it is. It is really crazy. It's it almost it's hard, you know, and that's kind of what I try not to do. Is I try to uh, you know emulate kind of when back in the day when you you couldn't just fix everything all the time, you know. Um, so I think that that that's kind of the difference now is you 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 work on you work on digital and you have all the options in the world to make something perfect, but you have to kind of choose to not take the character out of recordings right right well you know i'm kind of old school you know i don't rather than turn a knob on an eq i'll move a mic or change a mic and you know you know especially on tracking i I try to do i try to be yeah as little destructive as i can you know on acquisition the mics to get the right phase and stuff I mean, it's it's amazing how many young engineers I see in Nashville that just don't even do that stuff anymore. Um, it's really weird, actually. I'm I'm always surprised, uh, and I spend a lot of time tuning drums and a lot of time, you know, putting different things on drums and a lot of different moving the mics around, changing the mics out, and a lot of the young guys just don't even they don't even do that anymore. They just kind of rely on EQs and plugins more, which you know, whatever, teach their own. Yeah. Now let's uh, let's talk a little bit about that moment where you have to put the pen down and, and kind of move the song from its writing phase into its production phase. Uh, every songwriter has their way of determining when a song is ready to give to the band or the producer 
What do you do to determine that moment when a song uh, it moves to that next phase of its life? Well, I always cut a demo of it first, um, and I give it to the band to learn. So what I'll do is I'll just usually I'll, I'll just write the key down, and I'll sometimes I'll put the words. I have like a Google Dropbox that I use with my band. Another way I use technology. And I'll just put it, put all the demos up for the day, and usually they all write their own, um, you know, their own um, charts. But sometimes, you know, they'll send me question marks on them, and I'll help. Or my piano player is really good at writing charts, so sometimes if somebody's busy, he'll just let them use his charts, you know. But a lot of times they they learn the songs at home, and so that's when they write their charts, you know. And then they come into the studio, um, and we work it out in the studio. Um, but so yeah, it's, it's kind of like for me whenever whenever I have the the general organization of it done, there might be some changes to that in the studio with the band, depending on how we play things out. But you know, I like to have it pretty much set going in uh, the 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 layout of the song, the words done. And, you know, there might be a couple questions on some words, but I'll never really do, I'll never, like, go in and record a song if I don't have, like, it almost completely done, you know, um, with the words and the chords. Um, yeah, it's, I'm pretty picky about that stuff. I workshop stuff pretty hard before I give it to a band to learn. Okay. Because I, I don't want them to get mad at me either where they come in and it's totally different, you know. And then waste, waste their time on, on learning something that's going to be different, you know. Because their time is valuable. And then the fact is, is those guys are all way more, they, they learn a lot more songs than I do. You know, they're Nashville side guys. So they, they can learn a whole set in a day, you know, like a 20-song set for a band, like a day. And they do that stuff all the time. So I hate wasting their time because it's valuable. Right. Well, let's talk about the studio. Um, as a producer, engineer, and musician, you know, um, you of all people know that, you know, having a good song gives you something to say, but going into the studio creates the identity of the song and of you as an artist. What What's kind of your process when you go into the studio that allows you to capture your sound? Yeah, well... I mean, that's really just a lot of us deciding on the instruments and the players that I'm going to use. Um, so, like, if I'm going to go in and cut, like, four or five songs in a day, I try to kind of have it planned out. Like, uh, say if I'm going to have a fiddle player on, on a song or two, there might be one song where I'm not sure, but there's one song where I'm sure I want that. So I'll book them in, you know, the second half of the day, and we'll do two songs before lunch and then two songs after lunch. So a lot of it's just because we do it all live in the studio. So a lot of it's just who's in the room at the time, and that's how things get decided. Um, and you know, we'll 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 run a song, you know, and usually I'll be like surprised at how good it sounds the first time through. And everybody brings their charts in, and then um, we talk about stuff, and then we do another take. Then we go listen to it. We all go into the control room and listen to it, and then we might swap out some microphones. You know, might swap out a snare drum, might tune a kick drum, or uh, maybe even like switch from piano to organ, 
Um, or like uh, pedal steel to guitar, or mandolin to Telecaster. Make little adjustments like that, and then you go do it again, and it gets closer every time. Usually by about the fifth or sixth take, we have something done. And then, um, you know, we'll go listen to it, and if anybody needs to fix any mistakes, you know, they'll do punch-ins, and then uh, I'll usually take it home and... Um, and work on the mixing, you know, and, and maybe add some double guitars or double vocals or backing vocals or strings or, um, you know. Uh, but I like to start with more than I'm going to need um, because once you get a bunch of people playing the songs, you end up, you know, especially people you trust, you know, and I only bring in people I trust. And, I mean, we always end up with more good stuff than I'm going to need, and we also end up with more stuff than I could have ever come up with on my own you know, as well. So you just get a bunch of quality people in a room and see what happens, you know. It's more fun like that, too, as opposed to sitting around trying to write a melody for something, you know. Um, just everybody kind of hash things out at the same time and then people can compliment each other and, you know, um, sometimes they'll be like, okay, you comp on this first, you comp on this first. Sometimes it'll be like, hey, let's both comp at the same time. That sounded really cool, what you were doing, and we'll play it together, you know? And um, I don't know. There's all sorts of stuff that happens when you're just all playing in one room together that you would have never been able to plan out. You know, it's like a big jam session that we we put a bunch of expensive microphones on. <laughs> yeah. Tell me <laughs> about it. Um, all right. Now, let's talk about the lineup. Who's on? Who's playing on this? Okay, so um, my main bass player is a fellow named David Guy, and uh, he is just uh, such a great bass player. I love him so much, and he plays in my road band, too. Um, the main drummer is Danny Pratt, and he is uh, this Midwest guy, and he is um, he's played on a lot of my sessions in town, even when I'm producing for other people. And he, he went to uh, University of Illinois, I think, and he, he's like a jazz drummer, but... He also does the Broadway country rock drummer thing, and then he's he's in a band called Flying Buffaloes, and that's his main road gig. And then um, Adam Kurtz plays steel on everything, and um, Adam is a brilliant steel player. He plays with uh, Josh Roy Walker and uh, Sarah Shook and a bunch of other people, but he plays on all my sessions too. And then Zach Vincent is... Uh, the keyboard player, um, wherever I'm not playing keys. So all the, all the kind of fancy keyboard stuff, piano stuff is him. And then, you know, if there's any pads or, or you know, Mellotron synth stuff, that's usually me. Um, but he plays all the, the kind of musical stuff. And he's, um, he is just like, I don't know. He, he doesn't really play with a whole lot of cats around town, um, but I've known him for over 20 years now uh, up in Michigan and he went to college up there and I think you know he just he, he, he's he got like an insurance job um, I believe and he doesn't he doesn't play with a, a road band too much and he's been doing more shows with me but he kind of fills in just when we're in town and, and, and I want to do a bigger band sound you know and he's amazing uh, just I don't know I don't think I've ever heard him screw up ever before crazy okay. uh, those are the main guys then there's this cat adam meister i had him come in on one session 
he played lead guitar on a few of the songs. Um, but I played most of the guitar on the record, and and he's great. I mean, he's played with everybody in town, and um, you know, I just gotten I kind of decided I was going to finish the record, and I'd had enough material, and I was just booked one more session, and I got kind of sick of hearing myself play guitar, electric guitar. So I had him come in, you know, and and he's friends with everybody, and we never played together before, so it was fun. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's there's so many guitar players in this town. Um, you can kind of like find really cool ones to play with and they're all very, you know, very different. And, um, my record before that I had Lars Jamets play a little bit of guitar on that one. And he's, he's from Sturgill's Simpsons band from those kind of more, um, rock and country records. So there's a lot of guitar players you can kind of pull from in this town. Sometimes you just go out and see one, and you're like, well, I want to play with that guy, you know, and then have him come jam. But that's kind of how I found everybody. I just would go out and see people play, and it took a few years to find all the right people. Um, and sometimes people don't work out, and you just bring in a new person, and you know. But all the guys I have right now, and I've got extras now, too. You know, I've got first and second and third people I call sessions at this point people that i trust you know there's just so many great musicians here in town oh yeah um now let's talk a little bit about getting it out there you're working it with working with uh patty devries of devious planet um tell me a little bit about how that relationship began well she is the in-house publicist for jtm music and jtm music is three guys um, from kind of out west that have been supporters of my music through the last 10 years or so. They have a blog, um, Americana Highways, and then they also have this, you know, sort of distribution deal. And it's sort of like a record deal, except for they didn't make the record. They just, I made the record, and then they, you know, expressed interest in hearing it. And uh, they liked it, and... So what they do is they have Patty do the publicity for it. And then there's a, a distribution company that sends it to all those stores online and in real life. And then there's um, a radio promoter as well. And then there's, you know, a little bit of marketing that is attached to it as well. So it's kind of like a record deal, but a uh, little more hands-off. I'm still... I'm still like I'm I'm the record company and they are just kind of handling a lot of the logistical nightmarish stuff that comes with that. Okay. So, yeah, good. Now, it's really helpful. Now let's talk a little bit about the business. Um, I mean, the elephant in the room here is that the consumer has embraced streaming as a way to consume music. We're not going to change that. It's you know, it's too convenient for them. It's it's economical uh, for yeah. the price of of less than a CD. You have access to pretty much everything that's been recorded in the last hundred years. Um, but the problem is, is that recorded music has lost its status as a product. It's now a service. You know, if they hear of an artist, they go on Spotify, they look the artist up, they, you know, if the artist is there, then they must be real. Um, so, you know, Spotify kind of has that lock 
um, in in that they're like the Coca-Cola of streaming right now. Uh, but, um, you know, unfortunately, that that dichotomy of not being a product has really hurt independent artists. How has that shift in, in perception affected you as an artist? Well, you know, I've never been, I've never had much success in the music industry per se anyways um as far as this numbers go i mean i've i've been able to you know i've had an interesting life and i've traveled all over the world and i've you know made a living doing it um selling cds at, st- at shows and you know t-shirts and stuff like that and i still do a lot of that um i don't do as much as i used to as far as cd sales go um but you know, um, vinyl is a big thing now, which is very expensive. And, you know, I still sell t-shirts at shows. Um, and that's, you know, that's like a big part of my income, really. You know, that turns in a $300 show guarantee into a, you know, $500 night, you know, pretty quickly sometimes. Or, you know, a $1,000 show into a $1,500 show. So, I mean, that's kind of where the sales comes in. It's is the shows and the problem with that is you know uh you gotta go on tour and touring is great especially if you're young <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you're in your 20s touring is awesome and if you're in your 30s touring is still a viable option and then the older you get you really your touring level has to increase otherwise it becomes you know harder um you know, like, it's harder to sleep on people's floors the older you get, you know. And that's what I did in my 20s a lot, you know. It was, we didn't even start getting hotels, you know, for years. You know, it was always just uh, sleeping at friends' houses or sleeping in the van. And then, you know, you get older and, and you start getting the motels. And and then, you know, you start to do these higher-end tours and you get to stay in some nicer motels or whatever. So you really need that that increase, you know, um, in in the touring lifestyle to continue to tour. But you still sell stuff on the road, and and yeah, I mean, I don't make any money off of streaming. But sometimes I'll need thirty bucks, and I'll be like dead broke, and I'll be like, ah, my streaming services. And then I'll go on, and sure enough, every time I need thirty bucks, there's always thirty bucks on there, and I can empty it in my account, and then they give it to you in two days. So. <laughs> okay it's definitely not a big form of income for me at all um but it i also like to think that it's spotify in particular is, is kind of like a social media it it can turn people on to your music and you have to kind of look at it like that well um, you know it's interesting because i mean i agree with you there there is um that aspect that you have now have access to a huge mark potential market that's out there, but the way they have structured um, the payments, especially to independent artists, because let's face it, the record companies came in, they worked out their deals with Spotify, got a bigger piece of the pie for their artists, but the fact of the matter is, this is not sustainable. We can't continue to do this and devalue recorded music 
because it, it doesn't make sense for artists to go into the studio, spend the money that they need to spend to hire musicians or hire engineers and studios and get expensive mics and yada yada. Um, if there's no economic return, um, what do you think of, of that, you know, that sustainability of this particular business model? Yeah, I mean, the music industry does not feel sustainable at this moment in time by any means. To me, um, that being said, uh, you know, I got some friends out there that are doing really good. And that's, I think, kind of what it all boils down to is um, they kind of just, it's like a carrot, you know. They kind of dangle this carrot. The thing that really bugs me about the music industry right now is that everybody wants you to do stuff. Everybody wants you to get out there and do stuff, but nobody wants you to pay pay you for it. And um, and it's always the it's always you know it's always the responsibility of the musicians to take the loss. Um, and that drives me crazy. I mean, you know, and I've got I've got good people around me, and 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 you know my my booking agent here in, in the U.S. Me and him are, are are really tight, and we've been through a lot together. We've had arguments. We've had these, you know, bummer situations where we both lose money, and you know, we help each other out. And and same with you know, publicists I've worked with. You know, they've helped me out with things. You know, and um, but what you know, and radio promoters and all these people that make money off of music, the music industry. You know, they create the music industry, but when it all comes down to it, when people lose out, it's the it's the artists themselves. You know. And part of that is because, you know, we take a higher risk. And I guess any time that you take a passion and try and turn it into a business, there's a high risk of fatality or of, of failure, you know. And, and I guess I, I understand that. Um, but it's something that's been in the music industry, you know, as long as I have and done as much stuff as I have. It's it's amazing how, how little money there is in it and how much people want you to lose out on your own on your own end of stuff, you know, like my last tour I did with this, you know, booking agent, I'm no longer working with in Europe. I mean, he, you know, he, he wanted me to go do the show on the last night of tour. And it, you know, it was a good payday. So I was like, all right, let's go do it. And then the guy never ended up paying us. And, uh, you know, I did the show and I drove way out of my way for the show and had to cross the bridge between Copenhagen and Malmo and drive myself, there and then do the show and then drive myself back and it was about 14 hours extra and i only got about three hours of sleep you know and uh it was very risky stuff and i did it because he wanted me to and uh you know i lost money on it and i never got paid and i was i was the only person that did my job that day my agent yeah. didn't get me paid the promoter didn't pay me and i played for three hours and i drove for you know, an extra 10 hours that I wouldn't have had to drive. And, uh, you know, I told, I told my agent, I was like, listen, I lost $200 on that trip, crossing bridge and gas. And, uh, I'm not going to eat that $200. Like that's going to come out of your pay because I would have never been there if it wasn't for you. And he said that wasn't acceptable. And I said, you know what? Like, I don't care. It's not like, why is it that is I'm the only one that did my job and I'm the one that got screwed here, you know? And, uh, and we had a huge disagreement that, and we're not going to work together anymore. 
and I and I'm I'm really starting to get to that point. You know, I don't care if if you can't make it work for me, then why am I out doing it? Why would I go do another tour with a guy that's going to send me somewhere where I don't get paid? Right. You know, and why is it that the artist is always the one that's that's getting the raw deal? You know, um, if you're going to put out a record and you pay a publicist to do it, you know they're expensive. Uh, and if the record flops, <laughs> they still get paid, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everybody well, gets paid except for the artist. Well, if you think about it, I mean, you know, this is the only profession where you take $10,000 worth of equipment and a $30,000 CD that you paid for, put it into a $500 car and drive, you know, 18 hours to go to a $300 gig, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, not, it's not really a business, it's... You know, until it becomes a business, it's a dream, you know. And, and I, you know, I had a really good year in 2019, and we were really excited about 2020. And, you know, things were looking great for us. And then, you know, the whole industry fell, fell apart, you know. And um, and I lost so much money, you know. I put out a record that year and uh, hired my own, you know, people. They, I didn't have JTM. They weren't paying for anything. It was just all out of my pocket. And I probably spent $20,000 that just disappeared into the sky, you know. And that was the most money I'd ever had at that point in time. And it was and it was spent based on the fact that I had a good year in 2019, you know, where I was able to do that. And, uh, I mean, it, yeah, the music industry is, you know, um, a lot of the big, you know, the labels that are, have artists on tour right now, they're giving, you know, tour support and they're running out of money and then bands like me that are on the road, like I haven't made money on a tour this entire year. You know, I've lost money on every tour I've done. And so it comes out of my pocket. If I pay my band, you know, it's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's really rough right now for sure for everybody. Cause there's less people going to shows. I mean, the music industry to answer your question in long format. No, the industry, the music industry does not feel sustainable for independent artists. It feels like there's a, you know, an, a club and, you know, if you get invited, you're, if you get invited, good for you, you know? Um, and that's fine. I mean, I think it's always been like that, but I feel like people think that there's some kind of new, new world order, you know, with independent music and the internet and whatnot. But I just don't, I don't see it that way. I think it's just a new, you know, new name, same old boss or whatever. Okay. Now let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, the future uh, of streaming. I mean, cause let's face it, it, it is the way the consumers really prefer to listen, have their music. They don't want to store it. They don't want to uh, clog up their phones. Um, Especially title. I mean, title is high def audio. That's a great company. Yeah. Um, Spotify is really great as far as their interface goes. You know, there's there's all sorts of positive things to the streaming itself. It's not the streaming that's wrong. It's not the technology. Once again, it's the humans behind the technology. You right. know, <laughs> it's the age old adage, right? You know. Well, there's this new technology that um, they're developing uh, and is actually out there and functioning is mm-hmm. you know uh, streaming on the blockchain. Um, yeah. The same technology that secures of uh, cryptocurrency, um, companies like Audius, uh, which they're claiming they're going to pay artists up to ninety percent of the incoming revenue back to the content creators themselves. Uh, the other ten percent going to run the network. Uh, the beauty of blockchain streaming is that it's decentralized. There is no one controlling factor 
or company that that can determine, you know, um, whether you're going to get paid or not. It's all automatic through smart contracts. Uh, what mm-hmm. do you think of that technology as a possible way to kind of right this boat uh, and, and a different kind of business model for the future? Um, well, I think uh, that blockchain technology is a great is a great technology. I mean, I think that it's going to change a lot of the way things are done um, all over the board. But that's kind of like saying, in my opinion, blockchain is kind of like Spotify or, you know, it's like a technology, but it's really how you use the technology. And, you know, anybody I've talked to about blockchain technology doesn't really have like a very good plan as to how to implement it. Like, just thinking about the copies in general with blockchain, you know, like you have these things like OpenSea or these companies and it's like, what do you want to do? Do you want to have one copy of, do you want to have one copy of the, of the piece of art or do you want to create multiple copies or do you, uh, you know, do you want to release unlimited amounts of copies of this thing and then have people pay the same amount, you know? So, it's not like Spotify where it's like you pay one thing, you know, and then you then you own the digital copy of it, you know, and I just don't think that there's a value to owning a digital copy of something unless it's rare. So right. I think that NFTs... Uh, I'm just talking on the phone. Okay, are you... I just... My friends... You need to leave? No, I just wondered. I mean, I don't recognize you. I'm, I'm just doing an interview right now, so. Okay. Yeah. You know somebody that lives here? No. Well, well if you would, you need to leave. Sorry about that. Sitting here, part. Anyways. Yeah. So yeah, I think I think that the uh, the copy thing is really the important part of it. Well, you know, one of the things that they're doing with NFTs, uh, because I'm assuming that's what you're talking about, is uh, there's a company called Um, Royal.io. Naz, what he did is he took two of his songs and he, he minted a bunch of NFTs that represented a portion of his streaming royalties and sold it to his fan base. Uh, he made enough to co- to cover one half of the streaming royalties on two songs, and he was able to raise almost six hundred thousand dollars from his fan base. Uh, to top it off, when any of those fans decide to sell that, you know, later on and resell that NFT, he still gets a percentage of that resale value. Um, and the time, and you know that added benefit that he gets is that he now has almost three thousand fans that have an economic interest in making sure that his music gets streamed because they get paid from that NFT. You know what yeah. I mean? So it's almost so what's like the program that he's, what's the program that he's using? Uh, Royal Gotcha. And what he's doing is, I mean, if you if you really think about it, it's almost like 
having your fan base invest in you as they would the stock market. You know, is this yeah. song going to be a hit? Will I, you know, recoup my investment plus profit, you know, in the long run, in the in the long game? Um, so, you know, now branding becomes the the new product because you want your fans to want to invest in you. You need to create your brand in order for them to get excited about what you're doing. You know what I mean? It's it's a shift in the whole industry. You know what I mean? Yeah, I get it. I guess I just I mean, the problem that I see with that is. Most, that's not the medium most people listen to music on. So it's like you're really only reaching out to people that are into cryptocurrency, you know? Well, it's not based on crypto. The thing is, is that you can purchase it with dollars. You know oh, what I mean? Can? Yeah, you, gotcha. you you buy it with dollars. Um, and, and you own the NFT, which now pays you in dollars from his streaming royalties. Gotcha. Well, you sold me on it. Maybe you should send me the link. I'll check it out. Okay. I didn't know about that. I, you know, like I said, like I've, you know, I've talked to a lot of people about it, and every time I've talked to somebody about it, it didn't seem like it was viable to me at that point in time. But that being said, I'm not like opposed to the technology. It's just I haven't seen any viable any viable use of it yet. You know. Well, you know, that was one of the things when I started looking into NFTs and, and blockchain and that is that I really had a hard time wrapping my head around the whole concept of buying a digital COA is really what you're what you're doing for a, a digital piece of art. Because um, you really don't own the artwork. You own the rights to the original art as a COA but the art is still out there digitally. But this concept of using NFTs and making it um, attached to a real-world um, asset, such as streaming royalties, now you have something that you could sell your fan base that has a tangible um, return. You know, it's yeah. just not some, you know, phantom thing that you know nobody understands and with blockchain streaming the beauty of that is that it is a decentralized system so it really takes the large corporations the big record companies out of the equation and puts it into the hands of the artists and the fans so the music industry the way i see it right now seems to be moving towards this decentralized fan um, mu um, artist relationship where each artist has kind of their, their digital world or their digital bubble that their fans can now exist in. Um, and I'm sure it will tie into Web3 somewhere along the line where you can buy, you know, virtual t-shirts and and uh, and merchandise for your avatars you know as well as you know nfts and and make money from this streaming you know what i mean yeah yeah i get it <laughs> I, I'd, love, I'd love to i'd love to take a look at it you know? um, i find all that stuff super fascinating i just did a bunch of nfts that i minted uh well, I did the engineering side of it. 
um, at Folk Alliance Fest. Are you familiar with Folk Alliance? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I was there um, <clears throat> a month ago. And I recorded a bunch of artists uh, in my, my hotel room. And um, my partner at the time, was uh, he was going to... Um, he was going to mint them to NFT, and he was, you know, he hadn't figured out what he was going to use yet. I think he went with OpenSea, and, um, you know, it was an interesting concept. I just never really saw the viability of it at that point. Well, I yeah, OpenSea is, is kind of really a, the right. yeah, OpenSea is a, uh, I guess, like the Walmart of NFTs. Uh, yeah. I find I found that if you you mint them with Polygon uh, blockchain, it doesn't cost you anything as opposed to uh, the Ethereum blockchain, which could you know depending on when you try to mint, could could run anywhere from a hundred bucks to you know five hundred bucks to mint, you know. Yeah. Um, but the Polygon blockchain right now is is pretty pretty much free to to mint um you know nfts because i minted a whole bunch uh from uh, an old magazine that i used to uh own up in new york uh, long island entertainment and i had the pdfs of those uh original issues that i that i had so i minted nfts of those issues and uh you know i mean nobody's bought them but you know they're out there <laughs> yeah yeah. yeah, I mean, it's definitely something to look into. I wonder how that competes with, like, standard, you know, like, if you can still release things through normal streaming services or if they devalue each other, you know, or what. Well, I'm, I'm sure you can still go through, I, I mean, you can't devalue what Spotify pays you anymore. I mean, we'd be down yeah. to zero. Um you know, but yeah, but the thing is, is, you sign a contract usually when you're an artist. So if you have like a distribution deal or whatever, or a record deal, then they decide where your music gets distributed. Right. You know, if you're going through a record company, but if you're an independent artist and you know you're using, you know, DistroKid or TuneCore or CD Baby or whatever the case may be, um, you're pretty much free to do whatever you you please. Um, yeah, you know. Um, and and you know and that's really um, where I think that this is going to begin. I think when the larger artists start moving their catalog over to these blockchain streaming services, because uh, Audius um, has uh, backers like Katy Perry, uh, Jason Derulo, uh, Nas, Pusha T, Dead Mouse, a lot of EDM artists. So, you know, they're starting to kind of say, hey, this is this is the new thing. Let's let's start moving our stuff here. So yeah. I have a feeling it, it's within the next five years, either Spotify reimagines their business model for the independent artists or they're going to be kind of left behind like Napster was. Yeah. You know, I mean, nobody, you know, everyone thinks that Spotify is this big behemoth that can't be taken down. But if you look at, you know, you know, we started out with with Napster with the file sharing. Then we went into iTunes with, you know, downloads. And now iTunes is not the place anymore. It's now Spotify. You know, who knew that we take down Apple with a little company from Sweden, you know, so it can be done. Yeah. Yeah, well, the the Swedes, man, they know what they're doing. Yeah, 
They know how to run a business, that's for sure. Yeah, well, whatever <laughs> it is, they, they know how to make some money. So, they do know how to make money. But, you know, I, I really appreciate <laughs> you coming on the show and talking with us. And, uh, you know what? I, I'm, I actually, like, really appreciate you educating me on Audius, and I'd love you to send me some links on that stuff because sure. it sounds to me like you know quite a bit more about it than I do, and, and, I, and I, am, I am interested in it. But, I, you know, I only get, I, you can only be so interested in it, you know, as far as a teacher's willing to take you, you know? Right. And if the person trying to explain things to you has no idea what they're talking about, then, it, you know, you lose interest pretty quickly. And it sounds like you've actually looked at an actual viable way of doing it, uh, and I, I do find that fascinating. Well, I'm very um, pragmatic. You know, when I hear of new technology, I want to know what is it going to do for me? You mm -hmm. know what I mean? No, absolutely. And that's every time that I've heard an NFT, I've always asked questions, and people have told me, and I'm always like, well, so how do you do this? How many copies? You know, like, what do you do? And, and nobody ever has any realistic answers. Right. You know? And it reminds me of that, that record that the Wu-Tang Clan put out, like, 10, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it was one copy, uh, and that Martin Scarelli guy bought it. Do you remember that? Yep, yep. And then it got taken away from him because <laughs> yeah. of his... Uh uh, dubious dealings in in uh, in overpricing drugs. Yeah, and I and I think that that was a great model, and I love the idea of that. And I thought it was so funny that he was the guy that ended up buying it, and it kind of like put the flaw in it. You know, it's like the Wu Tang Clan is this band for the people, by the people. You know, and then they put out one record, and the richest farmer bro in the world buys it, and that's how I've kind of like looked at the viability of NFTs. Like how do you actually make money out of it? I've, and I've often thought about that, you know, what you were explaining with the fans making money off of the sale of it so they go out and are your best salespeople. But I've just never seen a company that was able to implement that in, like, the correct way. And so if you're saying that somebody's already come up with that option, you know, and we don't have to invent it, then I'm all about jumping on that, you know? Oh, yeah, uh, there's, every, there's several of them out there. Heard about, other than that, I'm just like, that doesn't sound, that sounds like the Martin Scarelli thing to me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. But and, you know what? Again, I, I, I appreciate you coming on, and uh, we're going to give everyone out there a double shot from your new release. You guys are going to love this. You know what? Turn it up loud. Screw the neighbors. We're going to have some fun tonight. <laughs> So I ran away 
independent artist or a fan that loves them making a scene.org is the place for you for the music fan we bring you in-depth interviews and cd reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music for the independent artist we bring you articles on music business recording techniques gear reviews and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. Got 
Make you shout now, honey. Gonna make. 